Hello and welcome back to One Bite at a Time with Hannah Sugars. Last week's episode explored behaviours and symptoms associated with anorexia nervosa that are perhaps considered taboo, where the shame and stigma attached inhibits sufferers from speaking out. I proposed that they must be addressed. When subject matter is more widely spoken about, it incentivizes people to engage with it, empowers people to contribute to that dialogue, to raise the necessary awareness and in turn with a hopeful view to promoting full recovery. The importance of talking should not be underestimated. This week I will continue to explore ideas of a personal nature. And a brief disclaimer before I begin, this particular content might be distressing for some. I will provide some insight into treatment, what it was like in the clinic, what my recovery journey looked like. As with the vast majority of what I discuss in these episodes, the content will likely be relevant and applicable to others who might have suffered with eating disorders. But I cannot say with any certainty whether these particular ideas apply. Indeed, many victims of eating disorders never so much as set foot inside a clinic. But this does not serve to invalidate their illness, nor the traumatic nature of their experiences. I will be referring to one particular clinic at a very particular time. I underwent treatment during the peak of COVID-19. As such, if the clinic wasn't already a traumatic experience, the keen sense of what was really none other than dystopia at that point in time certainly compounded this. The best of us were plagued with health anxieties, so to be on the brink of death during this time was especially daunting. Granted more so for my family than it was for me, I was not personally in a fit state to comprehend the severity of my illness, but I was vulnerable. My immune system wouldn't have been able to cope had I come into contact with COVID-19. A very minimal energy input was being used to protect my organs. I scarcely had energy to spare to regulate my body temperature, let alone fight off a virus. I was admitted to CAMS clinic in late 2020. CAMS are the Children Adolescent Mental Health Services. My admission followed a long and stressful waiting period as my health rapidly deteriorated before my family's eyes. My parents having been making phone calls and sending emails for a number of months to grant me access to the healthcare I so required. In the meantime, I was privileged enough to attend therapy sessions via private healthcare, but these sessions just about tied me over. They were ultimately very unhelpful, not least because private services couldn't provide the specialist treatment that I so desperately needed. Rather, they merely offered a safe space for me to discuss the happenings of my life, and we mapped my behavioural patterns. So we got a real sense of what was going on, if nothing else. Talking therapy was really only another way for my eating disorder to justify the continual practice of toxic behaviours. I could point to therapy as evidence that I was trying, that I was trying to be better, that I was talking about it. Not to mention these sessions were conducted over Zoom, owing to the spread of the virus. For one, my therapist had no real sense of who she was talking to. After all, she had never even met me. I was just a head and shoulders on a screen. There was no real connection, through no fault of her own. The screen was ultimately a barrier to communication in the first instance. Networking issues. Distractions that wouldn't otherwise occur in a workplace environment. Body language often being difficult to read. And then I was malnourished, too, so I lacked the focus, the ability to cooperate with her. On the subject of which, when an individual is malnourished, talking therapy is rendered redundant. It is completely futile. For one, the brain lacks the capacity to regulate emotions so I couldn't pinpoint precisely what I was feeling in the first instance. And second, even if I could, a malnourished brain simply cannot retain information. 
A refeeding process must first be put into place. This is the groundwork, the foundation upon which talking therapies can be built. This is as yet a little abstract, so I will supplement this idea with an analogy that might perhaps make more sense of this. Take physical health, for example, something we as a society are more familiar with, largely because physical health is something we are all ultimately more comfortable discussing. And it is my conviction that the world will be a better place when people feel about mental health as they do about physical health. They are equally important and should be treated as such. Say one tears their ACL, a ligament stabilizing the knee joint. They must undergo an amount of physiotherapy first before they are strong enough to tolerate treatment. An operation of sorts, presumably. Physiotherapy and food are interchangeable. Food equips the individual to respond to treatment. Without food, the brain isn't strong enough to respond to talking therapy. As I mentioned just a minute ago, all of my energy was reserved solely for survival purposes. The body and mind are stripped back to a primitive state. The brain is entirely occupied. It simply cannot cope with anything else. Everything else is secondary. So it was only once I was admitted to CAMS that any real progress was made. I was admitted as an urgent case, credit to a nurse at my local doctor's surgery having recognised that I had reached a dangerously low weight and was deteriorating still. Prior, my GP had dismissed me, after having had the courage to come forward, after months of my parents pushing and pushing, and me resisting and resisting. Denial, shame, fear, and all the rest of it. But even when I did go, my efforts to communicate my predicament were half-hearted. I didn't want to recover. I don't think I realised the severity of my illness before I was admitted. In fact, I'm not so sure upon reflection that I even considered it an illness. At this time, I considered what I was going through a case of mere unconventional thinking, an idea reinforced by a GP who clearly lacked the relevant education to support me. I cannot be the only one who has had their mental health trivialised by a so-called professional. I cannot speak for all GPs, but I do believe, and I've touched briefly on this before, that local doctor's surgeries should as a matter of necessity be educated more thoroughly on the topic of eating disorders. They are only becoming increasingly more common following the pandemic and in the contemporary media age. I can scarcely imagine how disheartening this was for my parents, who had spent months gearing up for this moment and the commitment that would follow. After having come into contact with this particular nurse, who clearly had her head screwed on, it was the sudden urgency with which I was admitted that opened my eyes to my self-inflicted tragedy. I don't remember an awful lot about the clinic. That's what trauma does to the brain. Disassociative amnesia, they call it. But much of it wouldn't be appropriate to share in any great detail anyway. I will recount of my experiences first what I remember, and of what I do what I feel is of more valuable nature. My clinic was an establishment for outpatients. In the particular climate, hospitals were very much engaged. Being an inpatient would likely have required me being shipped off to another hospital in the UK. It was a formal environment and really rather miserable, come to think of it. Quite dispiriting. This had little to do with the staff, who I found to be incredibly cordial and more importantly tactful for the most part, and everything to do with the atmosphere created by the patients and their family members. The waiting room was always plagued with uncomfortable silence. Nobody uttered a word. The air contaminated with the tension of unspoken dread, but also with the understanding, the sad and harsh reality. We are all alike living hell. We all merely observed one another, and maybe there were those of us who didn't want to speak out loud. 
deluded as to believe that not acknowledging where we were and why we were here might mean that it wasn't true. It couldn't be true. We weren't really here, and it hadn't come to this. And the sick were probably weighing up and validating or invalidating our tragedies accordingly based on the appearance of our fellow patients, as sick people often do. I know I certainly was. Appointments were very formulaic to begin with. At first I was weighed twice a week. I would step onto the scales backwards. I was advised that knowing my weight would be detrimental to recovery. In fact, it still is. It isn't something I'm comfortable knowing. I don't want to be defined by numbers. If I know that my body is healthy, there really is no use knowing. The best of us don't want to see numbers on a scale. But at the time, I was furious. I felt out of control. I hated that people knew things about me that I didn't. And I deeply resented them for it. The nurses and my own parents alike. Everything in the clinic was decided for me. Blood pressure and blood sugar checks were regular practice too. In the first few months, both were dangerously low in accordance with my weight, naturally. I was always furious with the nurses. Everything they said was wrong. Of course, they only had my best interest at heart, and they were only ever speaking factually. I was hysterical, much to the embarrassment of my parents. Temper tantrums. Regression, they called it. Reverting to a childlike state. Throwing my toys out of the pram, really. They said they saw it all the time with patients who were severely underweight. We had no control of our emotions. Fluctuating whimsically between fury, kicking and screaming, resisting help, fear, hiding and trembling, denying the need for help, and despair, crying and pleading, begging for help, for someone to fix the mess I found myself in. But I was also angry at myself for getting into this predicament, and scared of myself for the lengths that I had gone to, to apparently establish some control over my life, and sad for myself, pitying the inner child who was none other than a victim in all this. I was put on a refeeding plan rather promptly. The options were as follows. Hand over total control to my parents to restore my body back to health, or continue taking responsibility for myself and ultimately end up being tube-fed. The ultimate loss of control, beyond the lack of control that comes with being fed like an infant. It obviously wasn't really a choice. The nurses knew, and I knew really, that I would not be able to restore myself back to health, that with that level of responsibility my eating disorder would ultimately win out, scheming, manipulating, finding loopholes and easy get-outs. In order to recover fully, the eating disorder voice has to be drowned out. The eating disorder may no longer be entitled to any level of decision-making responsibility. Despite how well a patient might think they know themselves, the eating disorder has the upper hand so long as you are underweight. You will not outsmart your eating disorder. You quite literally do not have the energy. Your cognitive processes have been distorted. Handing over control is the only way forward. With sufficient and often abundant energy input, may one begin to rewire their consciousness. May the brain be equipped to respond to therapy that will in turn enable this process. I hated the nurse who proposed the solution. I knew it was coming. I had somehow evaded this outcome for a number of weeks. And she was absolutely right to put this into effect immediately. In fact, I was shocked that somebody hadn't sooner. She was a nurse who knew how to do her job. But that doesn't mean I didn't despise her with every inch of my being. She was taking away my control. But little did I imagine I'd thank her later. I'd be eternally grateful to her, even. Little did I think that she was giving me back control of my life. Refeeding was tough. No say in how much, nor any real say in what I was being fed. 
My mum knew what my safe foods were, and she did her best in the initial stages to accommodate this. But there was ultimately no recovery without branching out and exploring my fear foods. At the time, there were more foods I feared than foods I didn't, and I was hardly going to go on eating this very limited variety of food for the rest of my life. I was to eat three meals and three substantial snacks daily. I was to be monitored throughout the duration of the meal. I wasn't to leave the table until my plate was clear. It was tough for all the obvious reasons. Eating was anxiety-provoking. And then it was tough because I knew that the goal was ultimately to gain weight, and that would involve my body changing, a loss of control over my body. And then it was tough because I didn't gain weight as easily as we had anticipated. On the one hand, my eating disorder was placated, but on the other, this meant increasing my daily intake until progress was seen on the scales in the clinic. Not so thrilling. I was promised that there would come a time where I would begin to understand why I was doing this. Food was my medicine, I was told. I was asked to imagine the following scenarios. If I had a headache, would I deny myself painkillers? If I had a stomachache, would I deny myself a warm bath or a hot water bottle? Food was my medicine. Food would treat my symptoms. Food would do better. Food would even cure my symptoms altogether. But I couldn't even begin to comprehend what this would look like. It seemed completely counterintuitive. How could facing my worst fear make me feel better? Meanwhile, something did shift. My body registered the food at some point, and I began to understand. I began to feel human again. But I didn't know that I hadn't been feeling human until I ultimately began to feel human again. I didn't know that I had been starving until I began to eat again. I didn't know that I was miserable until I ultimately began to feel happy again. I slowly began to enjoy the taste of food, especially as I developed my palate. But I didn't initially want to admit that the nurses had been right, so I kept quiet. I silently anticipated my meals with something other than dread, this very alien feeling I couldn't quite pinpoint. And it was at this point, when I had energy enough for a cognitive shift, that I was able to begin therapy. And it wasn't plain sailing, not by any stretch of the imagination. When I reached a safe weight, I was able to reclaim responsibility for my eating habits, albeit monitored, naturally. I had to learn how to eat again, how to know what I wanted to eat, how to tune in with my hunger and fullness signals. Therapy was ultimately a support during this non-linear trial and error decision-making process. When therapy eventually became repetitive, when I ultimately had all the tools, everything from body image therapy, to cognitive behavioral therapy, to family-based therapy, they let me go. They set me free, out into the real world, just like that. And this was terrifying, but my nurses trusted me, and my parents trusted me, and I was beginning to trust myself again. I had one relapse between 2020 and 2024, September of 2022, when I attempted university for the first time around with little to no professional support. As soon as I came to terms with what was happening, with the help of my parents, I was terrified of what I was becoming, terrified of being in that dark, dark place again. I dropped out, effective, immediately. And it took me a year to get back to where I had been before I had started. But I am finally beginning to feel human again. I know the signs now. I know what to look out for. This dip in the road only made me stronger. And now I have regular support to keep me on my recovery-aligned path. And more importantly, I have built a strong relationship with myself at long last. Taking it back to the idea that I began with about watching other patients. It might be interesting to hear that upon leaving the clinic on that very last session of mine... I turned to my mother and expressed concern for another young woman, who looked to me to be emaciated. 
I couldn't believe how unwell she looked. My mother turned to me and she expressed her conviction that I had looked just the same as this young woman, only some months earlier. I realised then just the power of my eating disorder, just how warped my perception of self once was, just how distorted was the nature of my thoughts at that time. And this made me tearful. I was not only sad for the girl deep in her self-inflicted tragedy, only just beginning her recovery journey, sat there on the very same seat that I had sat in. But I was also sad for the girl who had been to Helen back already, who was only really just back, at the mercy of her own mind, leaving there having only just grasped the magnitude of her own experiences. I wish I could have spoken to my former self, my 16-year-old self, battling relentlessly with her mind, or even my 13-year-old self, on the cusp, with the wisdom that I have now acquired. I wish I could hold her in my arms and tell her that there is hope, and that she will get to know herself again, that she will see better days. And she most certainly has. And she wakes every day and commits to recovery all over again. To choose recovery is to choose life. You have been listening to One Bite at a Time with Hannah Sugars.